our friends, if you got your Bibles, Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, if you did not bring a Bible, that's okay. You can, you, there's a blue Bible underneath the seat you are sitting in. Um, and in the blue Bible, Psalm 90 is on page 551, 551 in, in the blue Bible. And if you don't own a Bible, like you don't have a Bible at your house, you, you, just, you came here this morning um, and you don't have a Bible because you, you, you literally don't own one. Or maybe you own one, but it's like so old, you never, you never read it. Take that one. That one's, that one's our gift to you. You can have that blue Bible. Um, bring, that, bring that home and, and, and read that one. We've been in Psalm 90 now for six weeks, um, and we have, we have a couple weeks left. Uh, actually, I think this is week, I don't know. We have two weeks left in Psalm 90. I have no idea how many weeks we've been. This has been a long time. We've been in Psalm 90 for a while. I think more than six weeks. But uh, we, we have a couple weeks left. We are, we're coming to the end. We are landing the plane on this on this series in Psalm 90, um, and we have made the transition into the second half of the text. For those of you who have not been here, you haven't been tracking with us, uh, you're brand new, that's okay. I want to challenge you this morning to go back two Sundays ago. We, we preached through uh, verses 10, 11, and 12. 10, 11, and 12. Uh, that is a good uh, sermon to go back and listen to because we recapped the entire first half of Psalm 90. It was a good recap sermon. So if you have not been here, I would encourage you two weeks ago, uh, verses 10, 11, and 12, we recapped all of the first half of Psalm 90. Um, and that will, that'll help you get caught up. Because today we have to move on. We've moved in kind of to the second half of the psalm. The first half of the psalm, real quick. We don't have time to go back there. But the first half um, is, is Moses talking about setting up what Calvin calls the precarious condition of man. Right? And he really lists three things. Number one, life is, in, is incredibly short. It's far shorter than we realize. We think life is long. 30 years is, is like an eternity. And, and Moses says, no, 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 no. Life is fleeting. It's like a flood. It's, it's like a, a dream. It's just, it's just, boom, it's just gone, right? And you can't get it back, right? The, the years of our life are just, are just whizzing by. Like you, it's short. It's fragile, you can't add any more value to your life. You, you can't. You are born with this, this, this small, finite amount of worth and value, and you cannot add any more to it. You cannot. There's nothing, there, there's meaning and purpose. These things that we long for are not found in our work. They're not found in the things that we do in this life, right? You are dust, and to dust you will return. And so life is short. Life is fleeting. It's fragile. And then at the end of it all, there is a, there is a holy and perfect and just judge who awaits us, okay? That is the precarious condition of man, and that's what Moses unpacks in the first half of the psalm. And so then he moves into, in the second half, what we've been calling these, um, these, these uh, kind of requests, these imperative requests, right? Imperatives are usually commands, but he's, but he's talking to God, so it is a request, but it's, there's, there's this great sense of urgency, right? He is so desperate for God to move. He sees how fragile his life is, and he says, okay, he, I, I need some things to change in my life because my life is so fragile. It's so fleeting. It's so, it's so, it's so meaningless. And at the end of it all, there's a perfect God who awaits me, and he will judge each one according to what they've done, okay? There's some things that need to change. And so he begins to give these kind of cry out to God, these these imperative requests, as we've been calling them. And the first one is this, teach, teach us, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom, right? I need to remember every day that my life is short. I need to remember every day that I can't add value to it. I need to remember every day that at the, at the end of it all, that you are the one who is standing there. Teach me to number my days. Don't let my mind think that life is long, right? We talked about that. Teach us to number our days, okay? Return, O oh Lord. 
right? If there's going to be anything good here, if there's going to be any meaning and value and purpose, I need you. I need you every day, every moment. I need you to be with me, right? Teach us in our days, return, O Lord, right? And then next was satisfy. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. Don't let my heart wander to meaningless things. I need you to satisfy me. I need to be satisfied in you. Keep me laser-focused in on you. Don't let me wander about in all the things of this world. I need to be focused on you because you are what matters most. And now we're going to move into the next one this morning. Our next imperative request, as we've been calling them. In verse 15 of Psalm 90, this is our text for this morning. It reads this way. Moses prays, make us, all right? Make us glad, Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Make us glad. That is the imperative request for this morning. Make us glad. Make us merry. Make us rejoice. Make us happy. Make us cheerful, right? When we look uh, at the Old Testament, this word in the Hebrew is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as those things. Happy, joyful, rejoice. And cheerful, glad, right? Gladden us. Increase our happiness is what Moses is asking God to do. Make us happy. This is the, kind of the next step in this kind of very, very orderly process. Like all of those things that I listed, all of those imperative requests that I, that I listed have a clear order to them, right? This idea of teach us to number our days. Well, when I number my days, what, I re- what do I realize? I need more than I need anything else in the world. More than I need blood in my veins and breath in my lungs, what do I need? I need, I need God to draw near to me, to lead me and guide me. So return, O oh Lord, right? But I know that even, even with him right next to me, if my heart is not satisfied in him, my heart will wander. My heart, my heart will leave him and will wander about. And so satisfy me. Satisfy me in the morning, right? And so the, the, the next thing in this order is make us glad, Make us glad, make us happy, make us cheerful, help us to delight. Listen, if you realize, if you knew your life was short, the doctor called, and you've got weeks, how would you spend those weeks? Would you do sad things? Would you, would you do things that are going to make you depressed? Would you just binge watch all of the Netflix sad shows to just like, oh, this is, this is going to be the best six weeks of my life? Right? No. You'd want to be happy. You'd be like, I want to do all the fun things. I, wanna, I, wanna, I want to do the things that I delight in, that I find joy in, that, I, that, are, that cheer me. That, right? I want to be with my kids, and I want to do fun things. I want to see them smile and laugh. This is what I want to do. I don't want to be sad, right? And so, so Moses comes to kind of this next logical thing. When I realize my days are numbered, when I realize my days are numbered, I don't, I don't want to live a miserable day. Like every, every day that I spend grumpy and complaining and bitter, right? Every day, there's, there's a difference between sadness and kind of grumpiness, okay? It's sorrow, sorrow is an unavoidable thing. But to be grumpy, to be bitter, to be just complain, to be, ah, right? No. Every, every moment of my life that I spend in that is a wasted moment. It's a wasted moment, right? And so when you begin to realize my days are fleeting before me, right? I need 
I want to be glad in those days. I want to be, in this short time that I have on earth, I want to be happy, not, not grumpy. I want to be joyful, not complaining. Right? So make, make me glad. Satisfy me, yes, but I want more than just to be satisfied. I want, I want my joy to increase. I want my delight to increase. Satisfy me, yes, but make me glad. Make us glad. The truth is, is that every single human being on the planet is searching for this. Happiness. Happiness. You, whether you realize it or not, whether you came in here this morning knowing this, everything you do in your life, everything you do, is to the end of happiness. Everything you do. If you think about it for a moment, what, what is what is the thing that you, that you, if you could snap your fingers, that you long for more than you long for anything else in this life, you could snap your fingers, you could make it happen, that you have one wish, one wish, anything you want, what would that thing be for you? What would it be for you? Maybe it's that, you're, maybe it's that your kids would know Jesus. Maybe it's that your, your spouse would, would return to you. Maybe it's that your friendship would be restored. Maybe, maybe it's something less meaningful than those things. I don't want to pick on you. Um, but anyways, but it, 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 would it make you happy? Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Every single one of us, all the things that we long for, all the things that we work towards, are ultimately linked to our happiness. They would make us happy. Blase Pascal, the French mathematician, philosopher, and theologian, who we've quoted quite a bit in this series because he, he talked a lot about life, right? But in, in his work, the Pancis de Pascal, uh, the thoughts of Pascal, he writes this. He says, all men and, and women, ladies, all humanity seeks happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will, the will of a man, the will of humanity never takes the least step but to this object. In everything we do, everything we do, this is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves, Pascal says. So often when that is quoted, they leave off that last line, right? But I think it's important. It's important to realize. It's important to kind of get that kind of jolt within you and say, wait a second, what? But it's true. The, the, the person who works tirelessly to be number one and it gives their life to earning all, or earning and earning and gaining and gaining and gaining, right? And the person who gives up and just quits and, and hangs themselves. Happiness is the driving force between both of those things. It is the driving force between everything we do. The will of humanity never takes the least step in, in any direction except towards happiness. Everything you've ever chosen, everything you've ever chosen to do, everything you've ever decided, this is what we're going to do this year. It's for your happiness. It's for your happiness. Pascal's not the only one. Augustine said it this way, he says, Every man, whatsoever his condition, desires to be happy. Every human being, no matter where you are, no matter, no matter what your condition is, if you're poor or you're rich, you're black or you're white, uh, no matter where you live or what you, what you think or what you do, if you're a follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, every man, no matter what his condition is, happiness. 
It's what you desire. He also says this, Augustine says, for who wishes anything for any other reason than that he may become happy? Have you ever wished for anything for any other reason than that you would be happy? The answer to the question is no. And you can think about it. You can think about it. You've, you may have chosen things that cost you, but in the end, it was for your happiness. Richard Sibbs, theologian, says it this way. He says, happiness, being by all men desirable, the desire of it is naturally engrafted in every man. The desire of happiness. And is the center of all the searchings of his heart and the turnings of his life. Happiness is the center of everything your heart is looking for and everything that you do in your life. It is the center of it. Your own happiness. The great Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, there is no man upon the earth who isn't earnestly seeking after happiness. In it appears abundantly by the variety of ways they so vigorously seek it. They will twist and turn in every way, ply all instruments to make themselves happy men. This is, this is theologian after theologian, philosopher after philosopher. They all arrive at the same place. When they begin to think about happiness, they realize this is a universal condition of humanity. That every human being on the planet, everyone who has ever been born that has the ability to cognitively think and search and pursue, has searched and pursued for their happiness. We've all done it. We all do it. We're doing it right now. And everything that we choose and everything that we do, happiness is the end of that journey. It is what we're looking for. And anytime you find a thread like this within humanity, it should cause you to stop. When you can stand on a stage in a room full of people, and it doesn't matter how many people are in the room, it could be 10,000 people, a million people, and you can say universally, everybody in the room, everybody in the room, this is true of you. It should cause us to stop and say, wait, wait, wait why? And there's certain threads like this, right? Our, our, our every human being's insatiable need for community, our, our fear of being alone. There, there's so many things that are universally true of, of all, every human being. And all of those things should, should cause us to stop and say, wait a second, what? what? Why is that true? Why is it true that every human being, every human being longs to be happy? I would argue this morning it's because we are built for happiness. We're built for happiness. We're going to talk a lot about this this morning. You see, I believe that we were created to be happy. We're created to be happy. In the Garden of Eden, right, Adam and Eve, were Adam and Eve unhappy in the Garden of Eden? Were they, were they unhappy? I thought about this a lot, actually, this week. And, and it could be argued that there was a moment where, where, at, where Adam was unhappy, where he was unsatisfied, where he's, he, na- he names all of the animals, which is a, which is a happy thing, right? So that's, that's cool. That's, that's a lot of fun. But then in the end, he's, he's like, oh, there's no one else like me. And he realizes that he's alone. Now, I don't know if he's unhappy or not, but he realizes it's, it's painted in a way that, yeah, he's, he's disturbed by this. But instantly, God says, I got this. And God gladdens him with woman. And they live in this place of this un- just happiness, bliss, and joy, and goodness, and delight. 
And when Adam and Eve, when they, when they eat from the, from the tree in the middle of the garden, when, when, they, when they eat from the fruit of the tree, do they eat from it because they're unhappy? No. No. You see, Satan has convinced them that there is happiness in something other than God. That there's something other than God that's going to make them happy. And this is the greatest lie of Satan. There, there is no greater lie, right? That, that, that you can find happiness outside of God is the greatest lie he's ever lied, right? And it, and it works. We're constantly pursuing happiness in all of these things and never being satisfied in them, right? Never actually finding true, genuine happiness. It is the greatest lie that he's ever lied. They were convinced of the most devilish lie. Friends, there is nothing wrong with seeking happiness. You were built for it. You were created to be a happy people. There's nothing wrong with seeking happiness. But you better be sure that it is actually true happiness that you're seeking. There's nothing wrong with seeking happiness. But you better be sure it's actually true happiness that you are seeking. Now, some of you in the room, when I said that, there's nothing wrong with seeking happiness. Some of you got a little uncomfortable. This is the reality of, of happiness today within the church. We have kind of created, we've kind of created this culture that is uh, against, in some way, against happiness. Um, Randy Alcorn, he, he's a well-known author. Um, many of you have probably read his book, Heaven. Heaven is, I think it's his most popular book. We did a series on heaven um, a while back and quoted Randy Alcorn a lot in that. But he also wrote a, wrote a book called Happiness kind of unpacking this theology of um, happiness. Um, and in that, he talks a lot about this idea of how the church has pitted happiness against joy. And a lot of what I'm going to talk about in the next kind of minute here is, is from, from his book, and we'll quote him a little bit today for sure. But happiness versus joy, right? The church, the church has said things like, joy is a supernatural peace given to us by God, even in times of hardship right, and trial, like joy is this, joy is this thing that's indestructible, right, in your, in your darkest hour, in your moment of sorrow, when everything else is failed, you can still have joy, right, when happiness is removed, you can still have joy, happiness changes from moment to moment with our circumstances and our mood, and therefore we should pursue joy, not happiness, joy is so much better than happiness, you don't want happiness, you want joy, that's what you want, problem is the Bible doesn't say that, the great theologians of old never argued that. Where did we come up with this idea? It's a modern idea. Something that's new. But I don't think you can separate joy and happiness. I don't think you can separate it. Those who are joyful are, well, they're happy. And those who are happy are, well, they're joyful. You can't separate the two. Delight and gladness and cheer happiness and joy. You can't separate them. They're not, they're not identical. They're not exactly the same, but they're not separable either. You can't parse them out and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, today I'm going to delight. I'm going to be filled with delight. I'm going to be filled with delight. I'm going to delight in all the things. I'm going to delight in my kids. I'm going to delight in, uh, I'm going to delight in my spouse. I'm going to delight in my friends. I'm going to delight in my work, but I will not be cheerful. It doesn't work. Today I'm going to be happy. I'm going to be happy in all of the things I do. I'm going to have so much happiness, but I will not be joyful. It doesn't work. 
You can't separate joy and happiness. You can't. It's like separating fire from heat. They're not the same thing. They're not the same thing. But you can't, you can't separate them. They go together. They're constantly working together. They're constantly partners in this thing. Joy and happiness. The theologians of old and the great preachers have all known this. Spurgeon knew this. Talked about it often. He said it this way. He says, despite your tribulation, he's talking to his church, despite your tribulation, which is what we often equate with joy, right? In your times of trouble, you can have joy, but you can't have happiness. Spurgeon says, despite your tribulation, take full delight in God, your exceeding joy this morning, and be happy in him. Be happy in him. Despite your tribulation, be happy in him. He goes on, he says this, this is another, another sermon, he says, May you so come, and then may, you, may your Christian life be fraught with happiness and overflowing with joy. May you so come, may you come to Jesus, and then may your Christian life, may your life in Christ be fraught with happiness. Might you become insanely happy. And, and, and view happiness as a bad thing. Joy and happiness complement each other. They, they are not op- opposites. They're not opposed to each other. Opposition to the word happiness is a recent development within the church. Um, in that book, Randy Alcorn on happiness, he points out Oswald Chambers. Oswald Chambers wrote, uh, My Utmost for His Highest, um, which is a very well-known work. It's an amazing work. It's an amazing work. And I never knew this before. I never, I never saw this. But in, in that book, uh, Alcorn points out multiple times in My Utmost for His Highest, uh, Chambers rails against happiness. He, he, makes, he makes happiness out to be this horrible thing. One, one time he says it this way. He says, joy should not be confused with happiness. In fact, it is an insult to Jesus Christ to use the word happiness in connection with him. What? That's crazy. I mean, listen, Oswald Chambers, it's brilliant work it really is my almost for his highest it's it's a good so many people have received so much happiness from that work i don't know i don't understand i don't i don't know where how he how he arrives at that when jesus says i have come that they may have life and have it abundantly yes he's Yes, eternal life, but he's talking about right now, this moment, this present moment of our life, that we would have a flourishing relationship with him, and that in our relationship with him, that our lives would flourish, that we would be filled with rejoicing and gladness and delight, and yes, happiness. They're all, they're all intertwined. They're all the same, not identical. A.W. Tozer put it this way. He says, the people of God ought to be the happiest people in the, all the wide world. People should be coming to us constantly and asking the source of our joy and delight. We should be the happiest. Not, not warring against it. Portraying happiness in Christ as a sin might very well be a sinful thing to do. Here's my two cents. Why, why do we do this? Why, has, why have we, and, and, I, and I, I'm spending a lot of time here because I think this is something that we have done. This is, this is a kind of a, a thought that I have heard. I've heard from people here at Flourishing Grace, and if I'm honest, I've said it myself. 
Joy and happiness are not the same thing, right? Um, joy is indestructible. It's lasting. You know, happiness, you know, it's feeble. You don't, you don't want happiness. You want joy. We've said things like that. We've heard things like that. Why do we say this? In our feeble attempt, I think, in our feeble attempt, good-hearted, good-hearted people who love Jesus, in their feeble attempt to tell the world that what we have in Christ is better than what they have, which is true. It's true. But in our attempt to tell the world that what we have in Christ is better than what what they have, we, Christians, have built a straw man of happiness and attached it to the world and said, see how pathetic it is compared to my joy? See how, see how broken your happiness is compared to my joy? Your happiness can't stand. Your happiness is temporary. Your happiness, you're chum, you find, trying to find happiness in that, and it doesn't fulfill, and then you go to that, and it doesn't fulfill, and you go to that, and it doesn't fulfill. But I, what I have is joy. It's better than what you have. And so we make a straw man out of happiness. Why have we done this? I would argue it's because we have failed to actually be happy and joyful in Christ. We failed to demonstrate to the world how unbelievably happy our God makes us. Because like the rest of the world, we've sought happiness in all of the wrong places. We need to crush happiness and declare joy because we actually have neither. But we want the world to know that what we have is better than what they have. The problem is we don't have it. We don't have it. Randy Alcorn, in that book, he says this. He says, a hundred years ago, every Christian knew the meaning of joy. Today, if you ask a group of Christians, what does joy mean? Most will grope for words with only one empathetic opinion. That joy is different from happiness. This is like saying that rain isn't wet or ice isn't cold. Scripture, dictionaries, and common language do not support this separation. Friends, if you insist on arguing for joy over happiness, I would challenge you to consider whether or not you have joy at all. And therefore, we must turn to a God who can make us glad, who can make us happy, who can make us joyful. This is what God does, right? This is why Moses turns to God and says, I need you to gladden us, gladden us. I need you to make us happy. I need you to make us cheerful. I need you to increase our joy. God is a happy God. He finds infinite gladness in himself. Infinite gladness, infinite cheer, infinite joy, infinite delight is wrapped up in who he is. He is completely satisfied, completely happy in himself. When, when he, he never, he never takes his gaze off of his own glory. And so his glory is this supremely joy-giving thing. He has supreme joy in what is supremely joyful. He has complete delight in what is completely delightful. He is completely, infinitely happy in himself. His loves are never out of line. He knows exactly what is worthy of his affection and his attention. And he delights in himself. And for all eternity, for all eternity, he has delighted in himself. When God speaks at the, at the baptism of Jesus, says, This is my son with whom I am well pleased, within whom I take pleasure, in whom I delight in, who makes me glad, who makes me happy. Right? I am fully delighted in myself. I'm well pleased in myself. There's never a moment when he's not constantly, always in gladdened by himself. I don't think in gladdens a word, but 
We're working with it this morning, okay? Constantly always gladdened by himself. Always. Always growing and more and more happy. He's not more and more happy. He is infinitely happy. He can't be any more happy. For all eternity, the Father has taken full happiness, cheer, delight, joy in the Son and in the Spirit, while the Spirit finds full happiness and delight and joy in the Father and the Son, while the Son takes full joy and happiness and delight and affection in the Father and the Spirit. For all eternity, God has been a happy God. Now, a few weeks ago, we preached on the wrath of God and the anger of God. And while God's, sin, God, while God's anger may be kindled against sin, it never diminishes his happiness. He's infinitely happy, infinitely happy. And when it comes to us, for those of us who are in Christ, he is happy with you. Our God is a happy God. And if you are in Christ, he is happy in you. And maybe this morning that's all you need to hear. That's it. Our God is glad. And if you are in Christ, he's gladdened by you. He's glad in you. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Those who are in Christ, none of them, no one. No one is regarded according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. Yet, yes, God's, God's anger is kindled against sin, but that is the old. The old has passed away. Christ died in place of the old, and the new has come. We are a new creation in Christ. Paul goes on a few verses later in verse 21. He says, For our sake he made to be, him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That was our kids' memory verse this week, right? That we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God. And God, for all eternity, has delighted in his own righteousness. He's delighted in his own glory. He's infinitely delighted by and happy in his righteousness. But in Christ, we are clothed in, as I say often, we're clothed in his own righteousness. On the cross, Jesus takes all of our sin, all of our brokenness, and he puts it on himself. It is murdered there. It is killed. It is brought to nothing. And he wraps us in his own righteousness. And so for those of us in the room who are in Christ, we have a happy God who is happy with us. Zephaniah 3.17 puts it this way. It says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one, who will what? What's the word? Who will what? Save. Save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. There's the word gladness, with joy, with delight, with happiness. You cannot separate them and gladden us. He will save you and he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will extol over you with loud singing. Oh, hey, hello. That's not God singing. Um, he will extol over you with, with loud singing. Right? He will sing songs over you because he is so glad 
in you. Like, because, why? He's saved you. When, when Jesus goes to the cross, I said this earlier, we're created, I believe that we are created for happiness. We're created in the image of God. God has never pursued something other than his happiness. He's constantly pursuing his happiness, constantly pursuing his happiness. He's never, he's never gonna, he's never gonna re- turn his back on his own happiness. Just like we, we are created in the image of God. This is why we are constantly seeking happiness. Because we're created in his image. And friends, what this means is that when Jesus goes to the cross, what is he seeking? His happiness. For the joy set before him. For the pleasure, for the delight, for the cheer, for the happiness set before him. He endured the cross despising the shame for the joy of being obedient to his father for the happiness of saving you and having you with him for all eternity he goes to the cross what was his what was the end his happiness his happiness constantly pursuing happiness this is why we crave happiness again and again So many genuine followers of Jesus spend so much of their lives trying to make God happy because they never realize how unbelievably glad he is towards us. So we must become a people who rest, simply rest, in his happiness. God is the source of true happiness. Moses understands this. Make us glad. I'm not going to find happiness in the other things of this world, so I need you to make me glad. Moses understands this. He's seeing what happens when, when people try to pursue gladness in the things of this world. He was there when they built a golden calf. He was there when they grumbled and complained for years in the wilderness. He was there when they gave up on God, thinking there's no way God's going to bring, bring us in the promised land. Right? It's going to be too difficult. We're all going to die trying to get into this thing. He was there. He saw it all. He knows what happens when we try to find our gladness, our happiness outside of God. This is the moment that we have, this one right here, right here. Happiness is not found in the future, it's found right here in this moment. Randy Alcorn says, anyone who waits for happiness will never be happy. Happiness escapes us until we understand why we should be happy, change our perspective, and develop habits of happiness. Why should you be happy why should you be happy? This is a question that our culture never asks, ever. Nobody went, Nobody ever asks, why should I be happy? We just say, I should be happy. I deserve to be happy, right? I, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. I, I deserve to be happy, right? No, why? But why should you? Why should you be happy? God has placed in you a deep need for happiness. He has filled the world with crumbs of happiness that will never fully satisfy, Right? A, a good, a, a really nice glass of wine. If you've never had really good wine, you've only drank cheap wine, you don't know happiness. You don't know happiness. Like a perfectly cooked steak. Right? Everyone would be like, I'm, not, I, I'm a vegetarian because I'm, you know, meat's, meat's not that good. You've never had a perfect steak. Like perfect steak, right? Yesterday we had 20 inches of snow in less than like eight hours. You want to know happiness? We went up to the snow basin, and like you're skiing through the trees, and all, the, all around you, you just hear hooting and hollering, jo- shouts of joy and delight. That's happiness, baby, right? 
But these are just taste. There's taste. Because eventually the glass of wine gets drunk. The steak gets eaten. You eat the last bite. The snow melts. There's little crumbs left all over the world for us. But it's a trail of crumbs. Each one teaching us and showing us that there's not fullness of happiness there. Each one leading us to the one who has made all of those things that we might find delight and joy in them, but ultimately leading us to the one who can, who, who, who can provide us with full and complete happiness, and that is God alone. He alone makes us fully happy. All right, we're late. I'm running over. Apologize to the kids' ministry teachers, okay? Listen, one last thing, and then we'll be done. You need to understand the consequences of us getting this wrong, right? I'm like preaching angry this morning on happiness. Like you can't, you gotta, you gotta realize this, people. Stop. We can't get this wrong. And I've gotten this wrong for too long. Honestly, I said to Desiree, my wife yesterday, I said, man, I think this is the most personally convicting sermon that I've I've done in a long time. Listen, if your your kids ever, that, that Tozer quote earlier, Right? We, should be the, we should be the happiest people on the planet. People should constantly be coming up to us and saying, Man, where is, where is the source of your gladness? Where is the source of your joy? When was the last time somebody came up to you and said, Man, why are you so happy? Your kids come up to you and say, Man, Dad, you are the happiest. Like, how, do you, how are you so happy all the time? Your spouse ever ask you that? My, mine doesn't. <laughs> if I'm honest with you, this has been hard. I struggle with this, this, this idea. And, and I've, I've, I've said things like joy, happiness, they're different. It's not true. I just want to make myself feel better. Alcorn says this, last quote, and we'll be, on, be done. It says, by creating distance between the gospel and happiness, we send the unbiblical and historically ungrounded message that the Christian faith is dull and dreary. We should speak against sin, yes, but hold up Christ as the happiness everyone longs for. If we don't, we are responsible for the world's perception that Christianity takes away happiness instead of bringing it. We're responsible for holding that up. What do you think our kids are going to think about Jesus? If we don't understand genuinely where our true happiness comes from, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, if we are not a people who find our rest and the satisfaction of an all-satisfying God and who are constantly turning to him for our gladness, our joy in this moment, it's not found in the future. It's not found in the steak that's sitting on your plate. It's found in the bite that's in your mouth. Right now, in this moment, that's where happiness is found. You're not going to find it in the future. It's not in the past. It's right here. It's right now in the God of all things who is infinitely glad in the work that he has done in you. And so we must be people who slow down regularly and practice habits of happiness. Right now, in this moment, I want to be a joyful man. I want to be happy towards my kids. And if my happiness is not coming from the God who gives all happiness, every ounce of our happiness comes from him, true happiness, I will never be so. And the world will look in and they will see a phony. They'll see one who does not understand who this God is. Let me pray for us. We're out of time. Let's pray. Father, we need you and gladden our hearts for as many days as we've seen affliction. Moses wandering about in the wilderness of people enslaved 
in Egypt. We could spend weeks talking about our need for happiness and our happy God who has happily given his life for us. Help us to be a people who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of happiness, count the cost of pursuing true happiness. But let us be people who are glad. Let the world look in and see a people who know who their God is, a happy God. Let us be a people who are constantly looking to you for our gladness. Not to the next purchase, not to the next bite, next morsel, the next experience, the next adventure. Let us find it right now. In this moment, the one that we have, let us look to you for our gladness and gladden us this morning.